Oh, jeez. Oh, my gosh. You're listening to Ah Geez, a Fargo recap podcast from Minnesota Public Radio. I'm Jay Gabler from The Current. I'm Tracy Mumford from Minnesota Public Radio News. Why do you think, Tracy, VM Varga was opening Emmett's Christmas presents? I think he's just a greedy dude. Was he greedy or just nosy? I guess he opens them very delicately with his switchblade. Yeah. Um, well, so before we get into everything that happened last night, hold tight because we have a great interview coming up at the end of the show, right? You, you talked to Maggie Phillips, the music director for the show. Yes, who told me all sorts of fascinating information about the music that she helped Noah Hawley pick for this show, and most intriguingly, told me what is in Mimo's earbuds. Oh, so good. All right, so stick around for that. But uh, as we said, so we opened Varga being very nosy slash greedy, opening all of Emmett's Christmas presents under the watchful gaze of a taxidermied bear. This season of Fargo brought to you by Bears, Bears, and More Bears. Yes, and then we cut to being reminded what else has been sliced open in this season. Ooh, this was such a macabre scene. You've got the fly on Ray's eye and this pool of blood on the carpet and First Noel is still playing in the background. Gloria and uh, Winnie arrive to find Ray lying dead on the floor and Gloria knows she has lost an opportunity here. Not as big an opportunity as Ray has lost, but she's bummed. And Nikki is still waiting at the motel room for a Ray that will never return. She's icing her wounds um, and she hears a knock at the door. She's, I, I loved what she's watching. She's watching a nature documentary about the female millipede, who we learn in this little uh, brief snatch of the documentary, uses its secret weapon of cyanide to deter creatures that attack her, but the female millipede, not a predator, she just defends herself. Oh, a little, little bit of symbolism there, right? Just Something a touch. Something going on. Just a touch. So housekeeping knocks, and it does turn out to be actually housekeeping, but... Uh, housekeeping with some reinforcements. Housekeeping so with some reinforcements. Uh, and we get the scene that's straight out of the original Fargo movie. Um, Nikki is caught trying to sneak out the back window of the motel room. Sheriff Mo Damick arrives and hauls her right out of that window. And she does handle this, give Nikki credit, she handles it with much more dignity than Jerry Lundegaard did. <laughs> She just, she understands the gig is up and yeah, Chief Damick pulls her out. Meanwhile, Emmett is trying to play it cool after accidentally murdering his brother. He has headed to the Bear's Den restaurant, which um, we actually figured out the Bear's Den is a real restaurant in Calgary. Please believe that if it was in Minnesota, we would all be going there for lunch right now. We might have to road trip anyway. It is an amazing place. I also love that clearly the widow Goldfarb insists on having all her power meetings at the Bear's Den. So Sai and uh, widow Goldfarb are waiting for Emmett, who arrives understandably flustered, having, uh, as Sai put it, just reviewed the quarterlies. <laughs> and he orders an old-fashioned on the rocks. And uh, they talk about the apparently imminent plan for Cy and Emma to sell Stussy Lots Limited to the Widow Goldfarb. Yeah, this is Cy's plan to get rid of this whole Varga situation by just selling everything to the Widow and leaving town, trying to get out of this. Yeah, Emmett is clearly a little agitated here, making some uncomfortable jokes. Sai is obviously concerned about whether this deal is going to go through. Nikki, meanwhile, has been hauled into the interrogation room. This is the uh, St. Cloud interrogation room. And I love that they have hand-cut snowflake decorations on the wall of the interrogation room. But Damick is saying, you know, he doesn't buy the Nikki-Ray relationship. He can tell that she's been using him this whole time to get out of her probation. Um, and he's trying to get her to open up and just just admit what was really happening here. And he leaves her to just look at the crime scene photos of Ray. 
which is this brutal moment, you know, that her fiance, there's pictures of him on the table dead. But she seems to be looking at something else in these photos. And we don't know what, but she clearly notices something. I'm thinking the stamp. Mm, maybe she sees the stamp. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's important for understanding what happens later in the episode, or for at least trying to understand what happens later in the episode, to realize that at this point, Varga's plan seems to be working, right? Damick clearly thinks, obviously, Nikki did it. Clearly, he was beating her. He refers to the the bruises. Clearly, she had a motive. And Damick is like, it's the simplest. When you mash potato, you get mashed potatoes. The simplest explanation here has got to be the correct one. So when he drops that photo of the deceased Ray in front of Nikki, he thinks, darn well, she has seen that image before. She's not going to be surprised. I just keep getting echoes of how similar season three is to season one. I feel like the connections between Molly in season one and Gloria in season three with like, the women are onto the story, but their male bosses don't believe them. I mean, it was almost, it felt like a word-for-word recreation when Damick comes out of the interrogation room and he still doesn't believe Gloria's theory. Yeah, as uh, Damick puts it, only an intellectual could believe something so stupid. And that's his response when Gloria outlines very concisely her entire theory, which is essentially correct regarding what's going on with this complex web of suspicious deaths. She very hurriedly outlines that to a character who seems to be like the St. Cloud police chief, so Damick's boss. And Gloria knows she just has a few seconds to try to convince him that Damick is thinking about this too simplistically and they need to pursue these connections among the Stussies. He's not convinced, though. No, of course not. This is Fargo, right? So Gloria now has to officially go rogue with help from Winnie. That's right. So they're making a plan. Meanwhile, back to Eden Valley, which I cannot stress again how much I love that the police department is in the public library. Um, And Donnie, clueless Donnie, who manages to forget his gun everywhere he goes, is doing some swiping on Tinder. (laughs) Okay, so Eden Valley is a town of 1,033 people. So I got to ask how many of them are on Tinder? It looks like Donnie has some good options there. I guess. I guess. I actually tweeted this last night and the Fargo show tweeted back to me that Donnie is very picky. So you have it there. Um, Donnie has his tastes and he's just using a little bit of his time on the job to peruse the Eden Valley options. So it gets worse because he, he gets a call to go check on something. Maybe it's vandalism. Maybe it's this burglary. But he forgets his gun, classic Donnie, and has to go back in. And who is waiting for him in the stacks of the library? But Yuri. Yuri, who is just hanging out reading a book. And if anyone recognized what that book is that Yuri is reading, please tweet at us at Augie's Podcast because we freeze framed it. We tried our darndest to see what that book was Yuri was reading, but it was too dark. What he does have with him is his whip, which we've seen him carrying around all season. And again, echoes of season one for me. I felt like Yuri's confrontation with Donnie, where he essentially talks him out of doing anything for his own good felt like when Lorne Malvo stops Gus in season one and talks him out of making the traffic stop. Yeah, we are back in the shadow of the aerial lift bridge in that sense for sure. And he's so confident that despite the fact that the only weapon we've there, at least Donnie has seen Yuri have is this whip. Yuri actually tells Donnie, go ahead, get your gun and leave. That is bold. Well, and he tells him, I'm not here. Yeah, I'm not here. You are by yourself talking to yourself in a room with books. Yeah, and demonstrating sort of the Varga philosophy, which is that your average local law enforcement 
or government representative is just not going to have the courage, the patience, the temerity to overcome a mild obstacle you throw in their way. He might have a Tinder date lined up, you know? He doesn't want to miss it. So Donnie takes off, leaving Yuri to retrieve the Ennis Stussy file. And one thing we can't ignore is that when Yuri leaves the library with the file on Anastasi, he has his wolf head with him. What is up with this wolf head? He you know, takes it with him everywhere. Wolves and bears. It just seems to put him in the right place. All right. And maybe disorients people a little bit, you know, if you had any question as to whether this person in front of you is crazy and might just whip the crap out of you. For the- him to be wearing a wolf head probably... Fair enough. Yeah, right. yeah. And the wolf head does come back later in the episode, too. But uh, speaking of bears, now we're back to the bear's den where the dinner between the widow Goldfarb and Sai and Emmett, uh, it could be going better. It, it could, could be going better. Sai, nervously laughing, says, you see why I'm usually the negotiator. And uh, the widow Goldfarb actually points out a, a little drop of something on Emmett's shirt, um, <laughs> which she says is red wine from lunch. Uh, no, it's your brother's blood, dude. We know what you did. Yeah. You can't hide it. And Emmett's already opening up about more personal details normally than you would want to share. Yeah, he's kind of going Varga on us here. He's like laying out this whole crazy theory. The effect of Varga on Emma is becoming very clear here. Yeah, Emmett seems to be buying into Varga's whole philosophy that basically the peasants are at the gates your only defense is to make as much money as you can and strengthen yourself and protect yourself because everybody is going to come for you. He feel, Emmett feels like he's been the successful one in his family and everybody has come for him. He tells the Widow Goldfire about the sex tape scam, although he doesn't necessarily say exactly who or how. But his night continues to get worse because they have some unexpected guests at dinner. So Sai spots Winnie Lopez standing across the restaurant and realizes he needs to do some damage control. This is harassment at this point, Jay. That's what Sai thinks. This is harassment. So Sai is the fixer. He's going to go take care of this. And he goes and talks to Winnie. But it turns out that uh, what has been disordered cannot be so easily fixed. Sai has to call Emmett over to learn the news. Which, right, is that Ray is dead. I've been here since six. Huh? He's been sitting here all night gabbing. Yes, sir. I, I'm sorry to say, your brother, I'm afraid he's deceased. We found his body earlier this evening. It's that girlfriend, the criminal. You should bring her in. Put the cuffs on. If anyone had motive. Motive for what, sir? I never no, we're, said. We're, we're Again, Emmett cannot get this right. He like blurts out his alibi before he even understands what's happened. He <laughs> hints at foul play. I mean, he just, he totally flubs this. Yeah. So basically, so the reason that Winnie is there, Winnie is not even supposed to be there. She's there because Gloria told her really quick, go find Emmett, be the one to tell him the news that his brother has died and watch for his reaction. And this is a test that Emmett absolutely blows. As you say, blurts out his alibi, says immediately, I've been here since six. And then further reveals that he assumes that his brother has been killed. He has been murdered. He says, oh, it was the girlfriend. It was absolutely the girlfriend. I've been here since six. Everything is fine. And Winnie... Is you know the the look on her face, you know, yeah, tells us not that buying it. yeah. Again, and I keep going back to this, but Emmett in this moment is very much Lester from season one of like you did something, you're getting caught, and you're not playing it cool at all. No, so now they're going to take off, leaving the widow Goldfarb, and Winnie has the presence of mind to go and talk to the widow Goldfarb. We don't see what 
she gets asked, but my guess is we're, she is going to be a witness who can testify that Emmett was not, in fact, at dinner at six, and furthermore, had a suspicious spot on his shirt and also was acting a little agitated. I'm so excited for the widow to become more of a power player this season. That's like my secret personal theory is that we have not seen uh, what she's capable of yet. Oh, yeah. She has no incentive to help Emmett out. The faster he goes down, the cheaper she gets to acquire his business for. So Cy drives Emmett home in their little yellow Hummer, and Emmett is having, I mean, borderline breakdown. Again, Varga's thinking has wound itself through his brain. He's accusing Cy of partnering with Ray to betray him. I mean, it's all coming out in the car. And I, I'm just going to put down that I am definitely team Cy on this one. That man is just, he gives and he gives and he gives, and he gets no recognition for it. You really think I'm... <laughs> In the face of all logic, that somehow I decided, me, the partner in a multi-million dollar corporation, that I decided to what, turn on you? Join forces with your leptard brother and his syphilitic floozy so I could turn millions into thousands? What's the math there? Yeah, this is such a poignant episode for Sai. Here Sai is demonstrating his faith to Emmett, he's saying, you can always trust me. You know, Cy doesn't even know the whole story, right? He doesn't know how Ray died. All he knows is Emmett needs help. And he says, all right, I, I got the cue from you that you were at the restaurant at six. I'm going to back you up on that. You were there at six. If you need anything at any time, you can call me. You can trust me. And is so hurt when Emmett outright accuses Cy of having conspired with Ray to, who knows, bring Emmett down. Sai says that just, that makes no sense. And then he even offers to call Stella on Emmett's behalf. You Maybe she'd want to be here for you in this moment. Maybe this could lead to the reconciliation. And Emmett turns him down and says that he just wants to be alone. He's not really alone. Uh, this was one of the most beautiful and striking scenes of the season so far. We get the grand staircase that's split in the Eden Prairie Mansion. And on one side, Emmett is sitting on the other side Varga sitting next to the taxidermied bear. Emmett is sitting next to the Christmas tree. Light, dark, you know, violence, celebration. We're getting a lot of that happening in, in the way they set this scene up. And we see that all the presents have been restored. That's right. Varga's pretty good with the scotch tape, I guess. Yeah. And so Varga tries to comfort Emmett by telling him a little nursery rhyme that his mother used to recite to him when he was a boy. But it turns out it's the nursery rhyme about the crooked house and the crooked this and the crooked that. And everything is crooked. And poor Emmett is just in the depths of despair at this point. Although he's doing better than poor Cy, who goes home. And for the first time, we see Mrs. Feltz. We see the person who gave Cy this world's best dad mug oh. that got violated. Yep. And she just seems to be the nicest person in the world, is helping Sai change out of his coat, is totally forgives him for having missed this like hangout session with someone who came by to say, you know, hello. And Sai is just breaking down. For Pete's sake, hon, what's wrong? The world. The world is wrong. What do you say? It looks like my world, <laughs> but everything's different. <laughs> All right, now stuff starts to get even crazier. So we're back at the St. Cloud police station, and Gloria is trying to work her way through the bureaucracy of blue forms and yellow forms and white forms and signatures to get in to see Nikki Swango. She really needs to talk to her. Um, and so she manages to scheme her way in there. 
Although we don't know that at first. So we see Gloria encountering a lot of frustrations. She needs, as you say, this form, that form, the other form. And she sort of goes into a bathroom stall in despair, trying to figure out what to do. And now things start to happen really quickly. We cut to Nikki, who is in a holding cell. And a shadowy cop, whose face we don't initially see, comes up and tells her she's going to need to put her arms backwards through the bars so she can be handcuffed so the cell can be searched. Right, and as she's uh, surrendering her hands to be handcuffed, Gloria bursts in, starts yelling at the at the shadowy figure. Um, they tussle, and he had a syringe. He was going, he was trying to kill or at least incapacitate Nikki. Yeah, when just when Gloria manages to burst in, it was just about when the syringe was about to go in, and Nikki knew there was going to be trouble. And so we very briefly see the face of this cop who is about to stick. Nikki. Right. Cop in air quotes there. So this is not a character that we've seen before, but uh, I recognize the actor DJ Qualls. He plays these kind of like weird, strange characters. So if you thought he looked familiar, yes, you've seen him in something. Um, But we've never seen him before in this season. Yeah. So a big question at the end of this episode is who was this character? Who was he working for? Was he actually a cop? Was he an imposter? We have yet to find out. But he is wielded off, drops the syringe, runs out. They don't catch him. I know. This was like comically ridiculous that they went after Gloria instead of going after the cop who's for some reason sprinting out of the room. Like, come on, St. Cloud. And it turns out he has hacked the camera. Either has hacked the camera or the camera malfunctioned because technology it was hacked, breaks Jay. around It was hacked. Gloria. You sound like Sheriff Modamic. Like, maybe it was just an accident. That's no, true, yeah. No, it was definitely hacked. The St. Cloud police are starting to get on board with what Gloria has been trying to tell them the entire time. And they agree that Nikki should be in protective custody. We get a brief interview. Gloria and Damick go in to talk to Nikki Damick is really frustrated, but finally acknowledges, okay, maybe there's more going on here than just mashed potatoes. Although he's still sticking to that theory, but right. he'll let Gloria maybe ask there's Nikki some gravy. a few questions. Yeah. So they do get a hint from Nikki. Gloria has figured out that there's more going on here than Damick thinks is going on, that Nikki isn't just all about exploiting Ray and knows more than she's letting on. And the only hint that Gloria gets out of Nikki is, quote, Follow the money. Right. So they think that maybe it was Emmett that killed Ray, but that's not what Nikki thinks. Nikki thinks that Varga was responsible, and she's trying to set them on the path of these people who attacked her and the big boss who she spied on that one time when they went to the lot. She doesn't know that Emmett actually killed him, but she thinks it was these goons. They take off. And I like the little moment just before Gloria walks out where Gloria says, hey, listen, maybe in a little bit, you and I will talk again and we can talk about Ray, what kind of guy he was. And I like this because it's Gloria just sort of like letting Nikki know, hey, like, I get you here, right? Or at least I get something about you that all these other people aren't getting. I like, I understand there may have been real feelings between you and Ray. You're not just a heartless, manipulative character. Oh, and this is so interesting here. This is something we've skipped over is that Gloria, we learned, has eight days including Christmas, left as chief in Eden Valley. I mean, this is her last case. So it is this really poignant moment in where she's like actually showing some compassion for Nikki. But it's also she's realizing the end of her career. Like this is it for her. Yeah, and she doesn't even get Christmas off because Christmas surprisingly busy in Eden Valley, mostly involving excess amounts of eggnog and Class C motor vehicles. As it happens. So they, they load Nikki into a prison transport van. It's filled with some some leering gentlemen, and they seat her in the last seat 
on the transport van and you start to hear some music that's very reminiscent of music we heard in season one. And as we pan out, we see the coat that starts looking familiar, a little, little fringe on the fur coat. And then it's Mr. Wrench. Nikki is sitting on the prison transfer bus next to Mr. Wrench. Season one and season three finally come together. They promised us there would be a connection, and here it is. So if you don't remember, Mr. Wrench and Mr. Numbers were henchmen for the Fargo mob in season one, and they ended up uh, also trying to track down Lauren Malvo. And Lauren Malvo actually killed Mr. Numbers, but he left Mr. Wrench alive. And he's just been out there, like, roaming the Midwest, getting up to crime all by himself for these last few years. This was very sad for me. Yeah. And it actually also ropes in season two because we met Mr. Wrench in season two as a boy. Right. We saw them as children. Yeah. When he was first being recruited to work for the Fargo mob. So maybe we will end up in Fargo after all by the time this season is over. That's true. So I I might have yelled out loud when I saw uh, Mr. Wrench. But then something else happens, obviously, as this prison transport van is heading down a snowy Minnesota road. Uh, It has to swerve. It tips over the side. There's chaos. There's breaking glass. People are knocked unconscious. And there's a reason it has to swerve. It has to swerve because Yuri comes walking out into the road. In his wolf thing. Yes, in his wolf thing. So the bus swerves to avoid hitting Yuri and instead rolls. Everybody is in the bus, seemingly unconscious. And here comes Yuri using a torch, a saw of some kind, to break into the bus. So here's the question, right? Is Mr. Wrench working for Varga, or does he just happen to be on the bus, or did somebody else put him on the bus? I wonder if, like, Mr. Wrench and that weird faux cop who tried to syringe her, maybe there's a whole other plot that we don't know about yet? I have so many questions. Yeah, well, all right, so let's start with this question. I was trying to work this out this morning. At the beginning of this episode, Varga's plan seems to be going pretty well. Nikki is arrested. The cops seem to be buying the theory that she must have been the one to kill Ray. And it looks like, you know, she's she's headed to take the fall for this. But by the end of the episode, someone who may or may not be connected to Varga tries to kill Nikki. And then, unambiguously, Yuri disrupts the prison transfer bus and starts breaking in, presumably for Nikki. So what happened over the course of the episode to make Varga and possibly other parties feel like Nikki now needs to be killed? It's a good question. I wonder if like something in the Anastasi file told them that Gloria is on to bigger connections than they thought. And maybe that's why they're like, it's not enough to just let Nikki go to jail. They need to take care of her once and for all. Or Gloria is not going to stop asking questions. Yeah. Or it could be that they saw Winnie show up at the Bear's Den and realize that, okay, this really is going to come back to Ennis. Um, Or it could be, yeah, they have their sources within the St. Cloud Police Department are hinting to them that, yeah, Gloria and Winnie are figuring things out. Also, the question is, what exactly does Nikki know that... Varga would be afraid of her revealing. Well, she's seen him. I mean, he doesn't know that she's seen him, though. And then she's seen his henchmen. Yes. So So he definitely knows that she has seen Yuri and Mimo beat the crap out of herself. And she knows where that semi is parked. Hmm. Many questions. Many questions. So one question is, the cop, was he working for Varga or for someone else? And if someone else, who would that other party be who would have an incentive 
to come for Nikki. Well, and is Mr. Wrench wrapped up in all that, too? We should find out pretty soon at the beginning of episode eight because we had a cliffhanger at the end of episode seven. Right, so there's only three episodes left, and it definitely took this season a while to get started. But this kind of stuff, this is why I love Fargo, where it's so tangled and you're not quite sure who's pulling what string or why the plan changed or what's happening. Um, so we're in the high point of this season for me right now. Yeah, well, and now that we've sort of kicked open a wormhole between the seasons, too, who knows, like, what other forces or characters... Or or musical themes from season one and season two will st- will come pouring in. Well, and I think it's interesting to know how similar Nikki is to Peggy from season two in terms of like these women who get backed into a corner by their own circumstances, but you can't count them out. There's a lot of similarities happening there. Yeah, you always want to uh, bet on the women in any incarnation of Fargo. So one interesting thing that I heard this week, uh, the president of FX was actually giving some interviews and he said that um, he's not sure if this is the last season of Fargo. He said if Noah Hawley can come up with an idea that can be as good as the three so far, they'll do it again. But he's not saying that there officially will be another season. So this could be it. Yeah, I saw that. and I thought, you know, it's a little scary for those of us who love the show and would love to see it come back, but also didn't necessarily feel like huge news to me in that I thought it was, we kind of understood that was how this works, right? That when Noah Hawley has a good idea for a season, he makes it happen, and it's clearly been a success for FX, so they're probably not going to cancel it for ratings. Right. Well, and you want it to go out on a high note, right? So if he doesn't have a good idea, then yeah, we will just go out on top, right? And he's got Legion and so much other stuff going on. But um, I think by this time last season or close to it, we had already had confirmation that there would be a third season and we're not getting that kind of confirmation for a fourth season. Yeah, that's true. And well, because it's an anthology series, it could also be something you could walk away from and come back to at some like indeterminate point in the future. You could be listening to us years from now. We're going to keep the Twitter account going no matter how long it takes. If it's like Twin Peaks and it takes 25 years, we'll still be tweeting at you. Stick with us, 500 followers. Should I not have said that? <laughs> no, that's good. <laughs> so speaking of music, we were really thrilled this week to be joined by Maggie Phillips, who is the music supervisor for Fargo. So this season has a very different sound than last season. Instead of setting the scene in the 70s, we've kind of been all over the musical map. Can you help us sort out what's going on with the music this season? Well, I think we're paying attention to some of the supporting characters and, uh, We have Yuri, who's Russian, and we have Varga, who's English. You know, we're trying to represent some of the supporting roles through our music, although Varga's certainly not supporting. But uh, that's where some of the new sounds came from, like the Cossacks Choir and some of the gypsy music that we have in there. And some of the music grew from the characters' places of birth, but also some of the sounds came from trial and error, Like, we started with a bunch of blues and a lot of jazz, and uh, slowly as the season progressed in post, it became clear that Nikki's sound was this sort of brass jazz sound. We use a lot of rebirth brass band, and that sort of became Nikki's soundtrack. It happens organically, especially when we dealt with a very accelerated post schedule. We didn't have as much time to sit and ponder as we did with season two. So a lot of these things just happened naturally as we were going through the process. So we talked last season about how some characters had anthems. And this season, it seems to be less that the characters would have a particular anthem and more they would have a, a genre or a sound. I think 
is the sound. I don't even think genre is the right way of saying it. Just the sound and certain instrumentation, perhaps. And this season in general seems to be strongly influenced by current events, fake news, Russia. Did that inform your musical choices? Oh, yeah, definitely. Like even the song in episode one, we had that Italian song, the Adriano Catalina Lino. I don't even probably butchering his name, but that song is about miscommunication. And it's called like the nonsensical song because the artist, he's an Italian artist who wrote a song that to him sounds like how Americans sound on TV. And um, the songs, uh, we have, you know, a huge Russian presence in, in this entire season. You'll hear more of it with the, with this episode to come. Sure. So I, we're actually next week going to be able to talk to Jeff Russo, the series composer. Could you explain mm-hmm. a little bit how you coordinate with him as a music coordinator? Well, it's music supervisor. Oh, supervisor. Excuse me. I'm sorry. Because <laughs> I, well, I, I, my music coordinator is Christine Green, and she's okay. fantastic. So uh, Jeff and I, we work together very closely. We talk every day. You know, we come together at the spots with Noah, Noah, Jeff, and I, and the sound guy, um, Nick, who's fantastic. We'll all sit together, and Regis, our producer slash editor, and, you know, we all get in a room together, watch an episode, decide what's going to be score, what's going to be source, talk about sound design. We all sort of share our opinion and, and discuss, but then we all, we leave and we do our thing. I'm songs and Jeff is score. But Jeff and I, we've become extremely close friends since we started to work on Fargo together and we actually work on a few other projects together but um we talk daily you know he'll send me his pieces for feedback before he sends to Noah and um we go back and forth on (laughs) Noah doesn't even know this on like whether or not we think something should be a song or score you know like we sort of like we discuss when we see the director's cut and, and just have an ongoing dialogue and then you know and then there's some instances where we have to really come into play, which when our two separate worlds combine, like the end of episode five, where we did a cover of Ship of Fools. And so Jeff did all the music for that song, all the instrumentation for that song, but he also combined his score into the arrangement. So we start with vocals, and we I think there's a little bit of this song in there. Then we go into score for the season. Then we come back to the song and then the song ends, and there's a big orchestrated piece at the end to take us out. So it's sort of a, a blend. So it sounds like there's overall very close uh, communication, and that if it seems like a song is working really closely in concert with the score we're hearing in a scene, that's that's no coincidence or accident. And no, 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 yeah. And then and then our music editor Matt Decker comes into play and makes it all seem seamless. He's, sure, he's fantastic. It's all teamwork. Yeah, totally. And Noah's, Noah's fantastic. He's really created, since we did season two together, and then we did Legion together, he's created the team that, that knows what he wants and what he likes, and we all uh, work very well together. And this season, because of that, has, it's run very smoothly in that um, there's a shorthand between all of us. That's been very helpful since it's been very accelerated post-schedule. Like, we're mixing an episode a week. Wow. Yeah, whereas last season, I think we were doing an episode every four to six weeks. So if it gives you a sense of the time difference. Yeah, totally. So actually, so last yeah. season, we talked about the fact that Noah himself has a strong musical background and even sort of made a surprise appearance singing a vocal on Go to Sleep, mm-hmm. You Little Baby. Are there any surprises like that? Not necessarily involving Noah himself, but anything that fans of the shows might not have noticed? Yeah, he sang uh, the cover of Ship of Fools. 
Okay. That's the only surprise. That was Noah doing the vocals. That's great. Noah is so much a part of the music. He's a genius when it comes to music, and um, he's taught me to listen to music in an entirely different way, which is the biggest gift of working on Fargo. So to talk about people who are not necessarily personally involved with the show, artists whose music you're bringing in to be a part of the show, pre-existing songs. So I know that when artists are approached and asked whether their music can be part of a show, sometimes they say no, sometimes they say enthusiastically yes. How often does it happen that you approach an artist or a songwriter and say, hey, we'd love to use this song in our show Fargo, and they say, nah, I don't think so. (laughs) It doesn't happen at all anymore. It's been very easy to to clear stuff this year. Last season, it was harder. Not everyone knew about it, but I think at this age, people know and they're excited. And also, like, I think season, I wasn't part of season one, but music wasn't as huge of a source music score was, but I don't think source music was as prominent in season one. Sure. And so it was season two that sort of, there started to be a lot more buzz about the, the music uh, the songs being used because it was a period piece. And so I think there was more attention placed on, on the music in season two. And so because of that season three, people are really eager to play a part of it. Um, but yeah, season two was more difficult. You know, what's interesting about season three, we're using a lot of international artists and even those artists are excited to be a part of Fargo. I don't think we've, reached out to anyone that hasn't known what what it was, which is exciting. You know, like we're talking to people in Bulgaria and in Russia and um, all over the world, and, and people are very excited. Yeah, and it seems like you've tapped some songs that are not really well-known to an American audience, although they may have been hits in their respective countries. So I imagine these some of these artists might be surprised to be getting a call from any American filmmaker. Yeah. Yeah, I would think so. But, you know, a lot of these people, I'm not going to the artists directly. I'm going through their reps. Sure. So even the reps are, sh- are showing excitement. So I, d- I don't know what their conversations are like with their artists. But when we put in a Who song in Legion episode one, and we got a note from Pete Townsend himself um, saying how excited he was about the placement. And uh, for me, that was just a thrilling, a thrilling moment. Yeah, frame, um, frame that one and put it on the wall, I imagine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, so actually, and I have a couple of questions about music we don't hear in the show. I don't know if they, that makes these easier or harder questions, but uh, so we noticed in Ray's apartment, he's got a pretty respectable little vinyl hutch. What what records are in Ray's collection? That's, that's stuff you don't think about when you're mixing an episode a week, and I don't know. I, I would have, and then that, that would be up to the production designer. I wonder if they just, if we could imagine, okay, sure. no, I'm taking this totally literally. If we could imagine, dude, I would say blues, seriously. He's an old school, down and out guy that sort of bites into that mentality a little bit. And we did it in the um, episode one. Like, I wouldn't say, we played that song moaning over those series of piss tests. It's beautiful me, fountain that, scene. It, yeah, the piss test scene. And that epitomizes... Ray and where he came from before he meets Nikki, someone who just hasn't made a life for themselves like they imagined. A stark contrast to Emmett, who who has made that life for himself. One other uh, great sort of mystery regarding what a character might be listening to, Mimo 
always on the earbuds. Any uh, mm-hmm. hints as to what uh, what's popping in his ears while he's doing all yeah. Vargas I mean, atrocities? There's actual stuff going on. He listens to a lot of classical music. He also listens to a lot of obscure jazz. He likes to dance. But there was a moment where the editor put in Medeski, Martin, and Wood. And we all agreed that he would probably be listening to that, but we just couldn't afford it. So when you say stuff is actually going on, you mean that it's actually there is in the mix, if you were to be able to sort of like zoom in. Yes, I had to license the music that's in his headphones. Okay. So 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 we should really just sort of pay very close attention, maybe turn it up a little uncomfortably even to get a sense of what's going on in Mimo's ears. Oh, yeah. There was thought put behind those pieces. (laughs) Yeah. But the budget was in was kept in mind for sure. So everybody has a sort of a dream setting. So say there's going to be a fourth season of Fargo and you got to pick mm-hmm. where and when that season is going to be that you would get to choose the soundtrack for. Any sort of dream setting for another season of Fargo? Well, we're limited in our settings, aren't we? Yeah. Well, it's going to have to be in Minnesota, probably, or at least in the near okay. vicinity. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but it could be, you um, know, and maybe this is a Minnesota perspective. It could be the Iron Range. It could be Minneapolis, you know. That's too specific for someone who's never been to that area, even though I have family there. For me, it would be all about what music I would love to listen to, and I would love to do something from the 60s. But that that's just me selfishly picking what kind of period music would be fun. Sure. Um, I would love to have something set in 73, 74, but we've done that. Um, so as far as Fargo goes, why not go way back, you know, like to the 20s or 30s? But I don't know. I mean, I'm speaking without any research. Like, I don't even oh, know sure. what's going on. Yeah. Um, in that part of the world at that time. Yeah. But I think that would be a fun who and whose grandfather would that be? Like Ted, would it be Ted Danson's character is let's say 60 and 79. So he's like, maybe, maybe it would be fun to see him as a young man in the forties. I don't know. I mean, I'm just, I clearly haven't given it enough thought to speak to right now. Sure. That's fine. It sounds fun to me. What are some of the other projects you're working on? Well, uh, I have a show called Snowfall on FX that will start um, July 5th. That's set in 83, and that's uh, a look at the cocaine crack epidemic in L.A. Um, John Singleton's helming that with Tommy Shalmi and Dave Andron as showrunners. Jeff's also doing the score for that. The music's fantastic. It's a good show. What else? Well, Legion Season 2 will be coming out soon. There's this show called People of Earth on TBS that has some fun music, and it's a Greg Daniels-produced comedy about aliens, aliens and an alien support group. Great. And we have Patriot on Amazon, which is dark comedy thriller. I don't know if people saw Moonlight, but that came out last year, and that was something I worked on. There's some movies. Oh, Ingrid Goes West. I have a lot of projects going on. Yes, (laughs) absolutely. Well, we really appreciate you taking time out of your very busy schedule to talk to us about Fargo. We love the show, love your work on it once again this year. Godspeed getting everything else uh, taken care of this season and with all your other projects. Thank you so much. I appreciate you taking time with me. The Audgies podcast is produced by Tracy Mumford, Jay Gabler, and Anna Reed. Our theme music is by the Valdons, courtesy of Secret Stash Records. Follow us on Twitter at Awgees Podcast, A-W-J-E-E-Z Podcast. And if you like what you hear, uh, please go ahead and give us a rating in iTunes. It really does help people find the show. Next week, we'll have an interview with Jeff Russo, who composes the music for Fargo. And he was fascinating. Okay, then. Bye now.